I want you to get in your minds a picture of what we've just read. It's very striking. Here you have an old woman. I figure that Elizabeth is probably at least in her early 70s, if not her early 80s. Her husband was a priest, Zechariah, and she too was descended from Aaron. So here they are, two old people who had never had any children, they had never given up praying, but Zechariah had given up believing. Do you ever keep on praying for something? even after you've long since given up hope that your prayer is going to be answered? Well, that was Zechariah, as we saw last week. They're both descendants of Aaron. And what's interesting, as we saw last week, is that the Virgin Mary comes from two bloodlines. She is a descendant of King David, and she is a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. So she comes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and very strange things are afoot. I want you to imagine this woman Mary with me for a moment. She must have been very bold. She must have had, not in an evil way, an independence about her that was extraordinary for women in that day. Because when Elizabeth tells the people what to name John the Baptist, they don't take her word for it. They argue with her, and they're going on and on and on. And her husband is both mute and deaf, and he motions for a writing pad. And so they bring the writing pad, and when he writes, his name is John, they accepted it. Now, it's an interesting thing when you think of the place of women in the first century of Christianity. But think about the contrast with Elizabeth. None of her relatives and none of her neighbors thought that she had the right to give name to the name to the child. But here's Mary. Mary is probably 12 or 13 years old. She's a single mom. She is engaged to be married to Joseph. And both she and Joseph are descended from King David. In my understanding, Luke's genealogy gives us the genealogy of Mary, while Matthew's gives us the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus' legal, though not biological, father. And so she's told something by the angel Gabriel. Unlike Zechariah, whose question was in unbelief, her question is, how can this be? I, I don't know a man. I've never... I've never experienced marital union with a man. And so the Holy Spirit explains to her this. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And then because Hebrew words things in a way that Hebrew poetry rhymes, not the way we have rhymes like dog and hog and cog, uh, but it rhymes by expressing the same thought in a different way. The Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And then he says, the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. That word overshadow is a very interesting word. It's used to describe what happened in the book of Exodus after all of the preparations for the tabernacle were completed. 
And at that point, when all of that was done in Exodus 34, the Holy Spirit came as the, what in, in rabbinical Judaism would be called the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God came down on the tabernacle and so filled it with the glory of God that no one could see what was going on. They couldn't go inside the tabernacle. And we're told in the Psalms that the Holy Spirit provides shelter for us like that too. So what happens is the Spirit of God speaking through the archangel Gabriel, tells the Virgin Mary that she's going to have a tabernacle experience. She's going to be the tabernacle that contains the eternal Son of God. And just as the Holy Spirit, as the Shekinah glory of God, fell on that tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus, 30, uh, Exodus 40, that's what's going to happen to you. And we're never told the details of how it happened. But this we do know as we analyze the text. The Lord Jesus is a true human being, just like you and me, except he didn't have a sinful nature and he never sinned. But he was a true human being. And he's different from you and me. The Lord Jesus is like Adam himself. Adam was created by direct act of God. And life came into the world for the very first time when God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living being. Do you know that human life has never begun on earth again since then? That human life breathed into Adam at the moment he was created by God has continued on. God took that life in the form of a rib from Adam and shaped it into Eve. And then as they came together as husband and wife, their children were all alive from the moment of conception. There's never a point when human life begins in history again since the Garden of Eden. And so here is the Lord Jesus. The moment of conception, he is a living human being, but he's like Adam in that he did not have two parents each sharing their chromosomes together to make a unique human being. You know that a baby in the womb is not a part of a woman because the baby in the womb is unique genetically, having half of his chromosomes from his father and half from his mother. So a baby in the womb from the moment of conception is alive, that life having been passed down through the millennia. But the Lord Jesus did not have a human father. The miracle is this. The Holy Spirit took an ovum from Mary and formed a real and new and complete human being solely from Mary's genetic material. And that's what we have in the Bible. So here she is, 12, 13 years old, engaged to be married to a man and living in a time when if you broke an engagement and you're a woman, you were subject to stoning. Have you ever thought about the law of God? The law of God in the Old Testament? Have you ever said, thank God I live in the New Testament? Because Mary becoming pregnant without being married and being engaged to a man, Joseph, her betrothed, had the right publicly to expose her and to have her executed. I want you to think about this woman for a moment. What an amazing, what a bold, what a daring woman 
This miracle happens evidently virtually at the same time the angel Gabriel announces this to her. And she says, behold, the slave of the Lord. It's not servant the way we think of it. It's slave, the bond slave. I'm bound as God's slave. Let it be done to me according to your word. And then, since the angel Gabriel has told her about her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, think about this young woman, a young teen. What an amazing character. There's no record that she went to talk to her mother or her father or to go explain anything to Joseph because at that point she certainly was not showing. And remember that in those days people did not wear yoga pants or skinny jeans. You were able to hide a pregnancy for many, 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 many months. So here she is, a pregnant, early teenaged woman, and she decides to set out some way or another, finding a caravan or a small group of travelers to go from Bethlehem, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, uh, to the hill country near Bethlehem, where her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant. Now this is amazing. Can you imagine the moment? Who's there? It's Mary, your cousin. And at that moment... Her cousin Elizabeth, who is about six months along, experiences something amazing in her womb. If you look there at verse 44, top of page 1589, she says, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And the Greek word there is a word that's used to describe a lamb that's been put in a pen. And for the first time in his whole life, the pen door is open and he's able to run out and get some of that luscious green grass he hasn't been able to eat. And what do you see him doing? He's leaping, he's skipping, he's dancing. And that's exactly what's going on inside Elizabeth's womb. This old woman, probably at least as old as I am, this old man, this baby is not simply moving in her womb the way that babies do. This baby has joy in the Holy Ghost. This is a happy baby. This baby's dancing in her womb. Can you imagine what that felt like to her? To have a dancing baby inside of her? And at that moment, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says something amazing to Mary. She says in verse 43... But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Who is the Virgin Mary? Well, the Virgin Mary is a person like you or me. She struggled with unbelief. We know that for a fact as we look at the Gospels. When she and Jesus' half-brothers and sisters tried to get him because they thought he'd lost his mind. We can read that another day. But they're standing outside. And people said to him, Jesus... Your mother and brothers are outside calling for you. And Jesus says, Hmm, who is my mother and who are my brothers but those who believe and respond to the word of God and looking around at all those who were listening to him. Mary was not a disciple of Jesus in spite of all these miracles until after Jesus rose from the dead. And that's very plain in the gospel. But she's called here the mother of my Lord. 
What is she saying? What is Elizabeth saying on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? She's saying that the Virgin Mary is the mater dei, to use Latin, or to use the Greek term, she is the theotokos, the theotokos, the God-bearer. Mary holds in her womb a true human being who is at one and the same time Almighty God. Mary is the mother of God in his human nature. I say that again. That sounds really odd, doesn't it? Who died on the cross? God died on the cross in his human nature. God himself did not die on the cross, nor was God himself born from Mary. What we have to say is there is a union between Christ's human nature and his divine nature so that we can say of either nature, the attributes of the one are relative to the other. Mary holds in her womb Yahweh, my Lord. Yahweh, the proper name of God in the Old Testament. And Elizabeth recognizes it because of a revelation of the Holy Spirit. How is it that the mother of my Yahweh would come to me? Wow. So Mary is the mother in his human nature of the eternal son of the eternal God. Our Lord Jesus, and this is what the incarnation is about. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Our Lord Jesus Christ is very God of very God. And he is a true and real human being, just like us. Can you imagine? Think of the moment. Here's this old woman who's experienced a miracle in her old age of having a son in her womb. And this son is the special person who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And as soon as Mary's voice is heard, as soon as his vo her voice is heard, John the Baptist recognizes him. Now that has a lot of implications when we think about the world we're in today with things like abortion and with things like when does human life begin and the thinking of a baby. Here you have a fetus. The Greek word is brephos. You have a fetus. And this fetus is worshiping a zygote. What I mean is, the Lord Jesus is barely there. But He is there. There's a true human being growing in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He's very primitive at this point in His human development. But what's so amazing is, that very small, tiny human fertilized egg, but fertilized not literally, but by a miracle of the Holy Spirit caused to develop into a real human being is worshipped by a fetus. A brephos, which can refer to a baby in or outside the womb. Think about it for a moment. Do you know there is no evidence John the Baptist ever saw Jesus until he baptized Jesus? Because he lived down in the south, in the hills of Judea. And the Lord Jesus went back to be born uh, in Bethlehem. So, John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, can think 
And John the Baptist in his mother's womb can dance in joy, in exaltation. How is it that the mother of my Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth, the eternal son of the eternal God, has come in the form of a little infant? But again, think of it. Think of Mary. Think of her independence. Think of her boldness. In an era when women had no place, in an era when Elizabeth can't even name her own child, here is this woman, a teenager at that, not a rebellious teenager, but a godly teenage girl who is pregnant by the miracle working of the Holy Spirit. And she determines to go see Elizabeth because obviously that's what Gabriel wants her to do. And she determines she's going to do what God wants her to do no matter what. Even if it means she's going to be stoned. She's going to obey God. She's going to go for the encouragement that she will find with Elizabeth. Imagine that. And then she said to be blessed among women. Look at verse 42. Elizabeth says in a loud voice. It means she was yelling. <laughs> you know, if you were pregnant with John the Baptist, instead of just a little kick inside, you had that baby dancing. I think, you, I think you'd say in a loud voice too. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. Do you know that that's expressed earlier in the text? When the, ga- the angel Gabriel comes to the, the Virgin Mary... What does he say to her? He tells her, you found favor with God. And then he goes on and he says in the top of the page, verse 32, he'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Is Jesus the son of David? Oh, yes. That's clear proof that Elizabeth, that uh, the Virgin Mary was a descendant of King David as was as she was a, as was her future husband Joseph and so he is saying to her greetings in verse 28 you who are highly favored the lord is with you and so now this is an interesting expression it's odd I want you to turn with me to the book of Judges. Let me to say, the other place besides the two examples in Luke, where this expression is found is in Judges chapter 5. Turn there with me for a moment. Judges chapter 5. And you will find that on page 378. That's Judges chapter 5. And verse 24. Now this is a very striking case. The only other time, that's page 380 actually, the only other time where this expression is found is on page 380, Judges chapter 5, verse 24. Blessed are you among women. What does that mean? What does it mean to be blessed among women? There's only one other woman in history who's been called blessed among women. That's St. Jael. You said, who is St. Jael? (laughs) In those days, as throughout history, 
God's children had enemies, real, concrete, real enemies who hated God's people. That's been true throughout history. And in this case, it involves the Israelites being pillaged and destroyed by a general by the name of Sisera. And what happens is Sisera is defeated by a miracle of the Spirit of God. God fights for Israel and he flees. Even though he was a powerful man with chariots, he's defeated. And what happens is we discover in verse 24, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling woman. He asked for water. He's exhausted. He's running away, trying to hide. And she gave him milk. What did she give him? She gave him buttermilk. Buttermilk is really good. I love buttermilk. Anyhow, he asked for water. She gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. That's buttermilk. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet she sank. He sank. He fell. There he lay. Her feet. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank. There he fell. Dead. Why are you even bringing that up? I'm bringing it up because it helps us understand what it means that Mary is blessed among women. It means she's happy. You're a happy woman, Mary. It's God's way of saying you're happy and blessed because you are contributing to the preservation of God's people by bearing the Messiah. In fact, you are contributing to the salvation of God's people exactly like this woman who must have been pretty strong and independent herself, to invite an enemy of God's people to hide out in her tent, and when he asks for water, brings him buttermilk. So he goes to sleep. And while he's feeling safe and secure from all alarms, she simply goes and gets a tent peg and a hammer, and she nailed him. It went right through his temples. Now why is that part of the story. I think it's part of the story, first of all, because of the expressions being identical in the Greek Old Testament and in the Gospel of Luke. But why is it important? It's important as we, as we encounter these stories in the Gospels. It's very apparent. The Lord Jesus didn't come into this world that it was all nice and rosy. If you read history at all, you understand that the world, since the sin of our first parents, is a terrible and hostile place to those who love God. Don't marvel if the world hates you. We understand that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In fact, that's what you hear in the song of Mary. That's what you hear in the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, delivering us out of the hand of our enemies. And that's what you hear, not to give away the next sermons, but that's what you hear when Simeon picks up the Lord Jesus in the Jewish temple and he speaks about deliverance from our enemies. You've got enemies. I can identify them for you. You want to know who your enemies are? 
As you read the Psalms and you read these curses there on people, they're called imprecatory Psalms. How should you pray imprecatory Psalms? How should you pray a curse Psalm? I curse people all the time. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about demon spirits. I'm talking about the wicked spiritual forces in high places. When I read the Psalms, I remember that they applied to David himself. They also apply to me because I'm in Christ. And the enemies I face are the same enemies you face. Discouraging spirits. Oh, when will he end this stupid sermon? I never heard of a Christmas story ending up with a a Bedouin woman piercing the temple of somebody with a tent peg. How absurd. What kind of a crazy preacher have we got? Or... Man, I hope he doesn't go on another 30 minutes like he used to when he preached in Alexandria. My roast will be cooked. It won't be cooked. It won't be fit to eat. Distractions. Why do you believe God? That list of things that we saw happen in our lives over the years, that just is nonsense. God doesn't do stuff like that today. Jesus came into the world in order to die for our sins and so deliver us from all of the power of the devil? Is that true? You and you believe in a substitutionary death of the Messiah on the cross to rescue us? All the kinds of unbelieving thoughts that, like midnight reflux, come up into our conscious minds to cause us to dismiss Holy Scripture. I've studied Holy Scripture now intimately from the very beginning when I first took a course in Greek since 1965. I've never found the Bible to be untrue. I've never found the promises of God not to be true. I commend the Bible to you. And I commend to you this bold, daring, teenage, single mother who sets out on her own by arranging her own transportation to go see Elizabeth and to be willing to say yes to the archangel Gabriel. I will do what God has called me to do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us here that in the silence of this moment, other than the sound of my voice, you would speak to us. What is it that you've called me to do? What odious, hard, difficult task do you want me to do? What is it that today, the 12th day of December 2021, are you calling me to do? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Lord, my temptation is to kick against the ox goads, but it only bloodies up my leg. Lord, would you give me this day, in this hour of worship, one more time to lay down my rights, to lay down my will, and to cast myself one more time on your mercy in Jesus for strength and the ability to do what you've called me to do. Lord, I pray you will give me the same kind of courageous, independent boldness that you gave a young teenage woman to set out on a journey 
She knew nowhere it was going to end, except she had a destiny. Would you give us all to be like that? And if there's anyone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the day when we give our heart to you in a final way, a definitive way. In Jesus' name, amen.